The scripture for today's sermon comes from Matthew 25, verses 14 through 30. The word of God speaks to us. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. And then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So as he went, so also he had he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little, and I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went, and I hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming should have received what was my own interest with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has will, for, for to everyone who has will be given more, and he will have an abundance, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is God's words to us. Thanks, be to God. Thanks Rhonda. Good to be with you all. For those of you who don't know me, my name is JJ. I have the joy of serving as one of the pastors here at Frontline. And today is a little bit of a special occasion that announces the uh, kickoff of our next counterformation guide. So for the last two years, the elders of this church have been praying and processing how do we best serve our people as we seek to lead you into all of us being formed into the image of Jesus. And there are so many cultural forces that are sweeping people off of their feet. And after a lot of prayer and reading and thought, we've decided to launch this counterformation initiative and we've identified a short list of forces that are deforming us at a faster rate than we're being formed. And we need to weave counterformation back into the fabric and the life of our church. So in the spring, for those of you who are with us, we tackled the deforming force of the autonomous self, and we brought consideration to bear on the counterformation of the safety and beauty of authority, the safety and beauty of God's authority, the safety and beauty of Scripture's authority in our life. So today, we have our second counterformation guide titled Stewardship, Discovering Godly Ambition for Your Life as the Counterforming Force to the Consumerism that's so rampant 
in our culture. So $6 on Amazon, you can pick up a copy. A lot of prayer and thought and preparation went into writing this. We got four weeks of training that you'll walk through together as a community group with teaching videos from the pastors. We have 40 daily liturgies with prayers and scripture readings and confessions. And we trust that this will encourage you guys and build you up. Stewardship is about so much more than just money. So if you're a member of this church, I'm asking you to engage this wholeheartedly together with your community. If you're not in a community group or you're realizing that you're in a season where you need to re-engage with one, this is a great time to do that before we jump into this counterformation guide together. So talk to one of us and we'd love to help you get connected. Next Sunday, we're going to be stepping into our series in 1 Corinthians. And uh, Josh, our founding pastor, will actually be here opening up that book with us, which will be a ton of fun. Today, what we're going to do is dig into stewardship as the counterforming force to the consumerism that we all struggle with. So pray with me over this text. Lord, we say with the psalmist, open our eyes so that we could see wonderful things in your word. Lord, meet us, fill us with fresh grace. Give us a new taste of how good and kind and faithful you are to us. In this text, we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. As humans, all of us in this room have always needed certain things to survive. Air, water, food, shelter, clothing. But in a recent article entitled A Brief History of Consumer Culture, Karen Higgs points out that by the 1920s in America, Americans had stopped so much consuming to live and started slowly living to consume. We stopped thinking primarily about what we needed, and we started increasingly thinking about what we wanted. One economist of the day called it the new gospel of consumption, by which people could be educated in the new skills of consumption. Another economist in that day pointed out that if this scheme was going to work and you were going to get people to start thinking and living this way, We would all need to see a certain high standard of living as this moving target that we're always aiming at and that's always just out of reach so that envying those above us would keep us all working longer hours in order to acquire more stuff. The result, as early as 1928, a journalist could write in the Detroit Free Press, Americanism is using money you haven't earned to buy things you don't need to impress people you don't like. (laughs) Now, it could be something on an Amazon wish list, but it might just as easily be a lifestyle or an experience or an ideology that we deep-dived our way into late at night with a screen inches from our face. But regardless of what it is, we can be sure that at every moment, every one of us in this room is being sold the allure of belonging somewhere, being seen and welcomed, being protected, being satisfied, becoming somebody special. We might be offered sheer hedonistic pleasure. We might just as easily be offered relief from our chronic anxiety. Whether we like it or not, all of us have been born and bred as consumers. All of us know what it feels like to be stuck in that addictive cycle of craving and acquisition, inevitably followed by regret, 
followed by a fresh wave of craving to try to drown out the regret. We all know it's a habit. We're not sure how to kick it. We're not always even sure if we want to kick it. But here in this eyewitness account of the life of Jesus from Matthew in the 25th chapter, we're going to see that Jesus tells a story to offer us a way out of that cycle. We're going to see here in our passage that God has created us to live not as consumers, but as stewards. God's made you a steward, not a consumer. But I don't want you to just take my word for it. I want you to look again at this passage that Rhonda just read for us. God's made us stewards, not consumers. And we know God's made us stewards, not consumers, because he hasn't revealed his return. And you might be thinking, what do those two things have to do with each other? The call to stewardship and the fact that Jesus hasn't told us when he's coming back. We know God's made us stewards, not consumers, because he hasn't revealed his return. That's because here in this passage, Jesus is actually in the middle of a conversation. He's still answering two questions. His followers came to him and asked him back in chapter 24. One, when are you coming back? And two, what's going to be a sign that it's close so we can be prepared? And Jesus answers them famously in Matthew 24, verse 36, concerning that day and hour nobody knows. Not even the angels of heaven, not even the Son in his humanity, but the Father only. And then Jesus goes on to explain Hey, but that doesn't have to be a problem for you if you live in such a way that no matter when I come, my arrival's a welcome surprise. Jesus is saying to them, hey, you can't cram for my second coming. So you're going to have to simply live your everyday life in such a way that whenever I show up, it's a welcome surprise. Nobody should be worried about my return but the unprepared. What does that look like, his followers wonder. And so Jesus begins to tell them a series of parables, stories that aren't always easily or immediately understood. And each of these stories poses and answers the question, what's the kingdom of heaven like? Because back in Matthew 4, Jesus actually stood up and kicked off his public ministry by loudly declaring, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, God's promised reign has now begun. So how would we steward our lives if we knew God was king and we obeyed him and we listened to him above any other authority, including even our own wandering desires? Jesus wants them to consider that question. And so he tells the story that begins with for it will be like, for the kingdom of heaven will be like, to try to wake them up to the cosmic reality that the long-awaited reign of God by God's people has already begun. It's already broken in through Jesus' own birth and life and his looming death and resurrection. So that's why I say that we know God's made us stewards, not consumers, because he hasn't revealed his return. But also, Jesus says, because he hasn't withheld his riches. We know God's made us stewards and not consumers because he hasn't withheld his riches. The word stewardship isn't in this passage, but the concept is at the very heart of it. 
And this theme of stewardship gets picked up and repeated by the apostles in their own writing. So Peter can write in 1 Peter 4, as each of you has received a gift and you have, use it to serve each other as good stewards of God's varied grace. Peter calls us stewards, a word people in his day would have understood to refer to somebody who manages their master's property. So here Jesus tells a story about a master entrusting his property, verse 14, to his servants. This is a story about stewardship. What is to be stewarded? Everything. Everything God's given you, of which he'll expect a report on how you used it. That's your money, your possessions, your time, your attention, your body, your emotions, your relationships. Verse 15, to one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, notice, to each according to his ability. Now, back then a talent was actually a unit of coinage with a value that would change in different times and places, but it was broadly equal, Jesus' listeners would have known, to about 20 years worth of pay for the average person. So Jesus is telling a story where a master has given these three servants the equivalent of 100 years, 40 years, and 20 years worth of wages. He's handed them these giant bags of money that they never could have earned on their own. These bags of money are these big gifts of undeserved favor. These are gifts of grace. Because Jesus wants his hearers to think about God's generosity. And the responsibility and the holy fear that should fall on anybody who's entrusted with such massive, unearned capital. Verses 14 and 15 tell us the master, quote, entrusted to them his property, each according to his ability. And so that means that we shouldn't get hung up on how much or how little we each think we've been given. Instead of getting stuck wondering what you'd accomplish if you'd been given as much as that person... The invitation for you is to ask what it would look like for you to steward all of what you've been given. According to Jesus' story, every Christian is talented. No Christian should worry whether they've been given enough. Our only concern should be how to steward what we've been given because it's more than enough. Notice verse 15, the master gave the money to each according to his ability and then he went away. The master gives, and he goes away, he promises to return. And in his giving and going away and promise to return, we're all tempted to believe three big lies. One, that what we have, we didn't receive. Two, that what we have belongs to us. And three, that we'll never have to give an account for ourselves. But the 20th century is littered with the horrors of how humans act when they think there's no God and no lasting consequences. We know that we not only live in a world that's hardwired for consumerism, but our own hearts have acquired a strong taste for it. So how are we going to find the motivation to push back? Jesus knows how we're built. He knows we're going to need more than just a reminder that we're made stewards. We're also going to need motivation. So we see in verses 19 through 30 that Jesus gives us two motives to steward. He's not only made us stewards, but he 
gives us in this story two motives to steward. The first motive to steward is that every Christian can please God. Every Christian can please God. And Jesus helps his hearers understand that every Christian can please God because he cares more than we know. He cares more than we know. It says in the story that eventually the master came back and he settled accounts with them. And beginning at verse 20, we see how the first two servants give an account. They're highly self-conscious of having been entrusted. They expected this day to come. Their master hasn't tricked them or surprise them. They've been preparing themselves for this day and this conversation. When does the master come and settle accounts with them? Notice verse 19, after a long time. Now, Jesus may have told the story in this way to warn his followers that though his return might be imminent after he returned to the Father, it wouldn't be immediate. But Why? <laughs> What's taking Jesus so long to return, his people might ask as they see the brokenness in the world. Second Peter 3, listen to how Peter answers that question. Scoffers are going to come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. Here's what they're going to say. Where's the promise of his coming? Ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning, Nothing's changed. What makes us think it's going to change? But Peter says, don't overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord's not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. It's because he's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should receive repentance. God cares more than we know. Peter's telling us that God's seeming delay is due to his patience. He delays not because he's distracted or incompetent or he got hung up with a project, but because he's patient. Notice the man who received five talents. It says in verse 16, he went to start investing them at once, immediately, without delay. He didn't waste a single moment sitting on his hands. He carried out his stewardship with a sense of, of urgency. But we often lack that kind of urgency. Why is that? What tempts us to neglect our stewardship? What tempts us towards paralysis and discouragement? As I thought about that this week, I think it's almost always the same root cause. We forget that God sees. We forget that his face is turned toward us. He cares more than you know. In fact, throughout the history of the church, Christians have reminded each other that they live quorum deo, a Latin phrase meaning before the face of God. Christians for thousands of years have reminded themselves that everything we think and say and do is unfolding before the face of the one to whom we're each going to give an account, and that's both a warning against unfaithfulness and it's an infusion of hope for the weary. God is the only one on whom nothing is lost. Everything you think and say and do is unfolding before his face, before the face of the one who in the words of Hebrews 6, is not so unjust as to overlook your work. God sees. 
And that's why Paul can say in Galatians 6, 9, hey, let's not grow weary of doing good. For in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. So ask yourself today, do you feel ignored by him? Do you feel unappreciated and unloved by him? Does your suffering make you feel invisible to him? Scripture says, God is the one who counts your very breaths, collects all your tears. His thoughts towards you are more than all the grains of sand on every beach in the world. He actually knows what you need before you can even open your mouth to ask. He's that attentive and that engaged with you right in the middle of all of it. But God not only cares more than we know, he also credits more than we know. Every Christian can please God, Jesus is trying to help us see in this story, because he credits far more than we know. God is such a being that he actually rewards us for doing what he first enabled us to do. God rewards us for working out what he first worked in and through us. God is like that dad who the child comes to and pulls on his shirt and says, hey, dad, can I have some money so I can go buy you a birthday present? <laughs> and, and he loves it when his children do that. He's crediting to our accounts so much more than we could ever imagine. Every moment that you're fighting to trust him matters and counts. Kevin DeYoung says it so well in his little book, The Hole in Our Holiness. Why do we imagine God to be so unmoved by our heartfelt attempts at obedience? He is, after all, our heavenly father. What sort of father looks at his daughter's homemade birthday card and complains the color scheme's all wrong? What kind of mother would say to her son after he gladly cleaned the garage but put the paint cans on the wrong shelf, ah, this is worthless in my sight? <laughs> What sort of parent rolls his eyes when his child falls off the bike on the first try? See, this is confusing for us because there's no righteousness that makes us right with God except for the righteousness of Christ. But for those who've been made right with God by grace alone, through faith alone, and therefore have been adopted into God's family, many of our righteous deeds are not only not filthy in God's eyes, Quoting the passage that haunts too many Christians from Isaiah, that all of our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. Yeah, they're like filthy rags when you're trying to cover up your sin instead of bring it to him for cleansing. But when you've been adopted as a son or his daughter, many of our righteous deeds are not only not filthy in God's eyes, they're exceedingly sweet and precious and pleasing to him. And notice verse 23 how these two servants receive the exact same commendation, word for word, line for line, even though the first servant earned way more than the second. Why is that? Well, they each succeeded in proportion to what they had been given. See, God's not gonna judge your faithfulness on the basis of the person that you envy or are intimidated by. He's gonna judge your faithfulness on the basis of the person that you are. So the first motive to steward that Jesus wants us to see is that every Christian can please God. The second motive is more sobering. The second motive to steward we see in our text is that every human being will be called 
to account. Being called to account, apart from the forgiveness found in Jesus, is the most terrifying prospect any human is ever going to face. And we see in the last two verses of our passage that anybody who refuses their stewardship, anybody who hard-heartedly, persistently throws God's generosity back in his face is one day going to experience the most unimaginable anguish. It's going to lead to the loss of God's presence. And thus it's going to lead to the loss of the joy that can only be found in his presence. There is a hell, and people are going there. And the saddest thing is that all of us in this room, left to ourselves, unless God graciously breaks in and changes our feelings on the matter, our greatest fear is not that God would send us there, but that he would try and stop us. That's what hell is in one sense. It's God giving us what we want, which is to get away from his meddling. And nothing could be a greater punishment than for God to finally and justly give someone precisely what they want and withdraw his presence from them. No wonder Jesus describes that state as outer darkness. Paul, thinking of these things, was so burdened for his brothers and sisters in Israel who were persisting in their desire to push away the presence of God that in his anguish for their fate, he could only finally cry out in Romans 9, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. And this is the only right response. Any Christian who thinks or talks about hell with any less anguish than Paul or with even the slightest hint of flippancy, does themselves and everybody they love a great disservice. I'm gonna say this as kindly as I can. If you're a Christian, and if you can talk about the prospect of hell without tears in your eyes, then you don't know what you're talking about, and it would be better for you to be quiet. But one thing is clear. All of us will be called to account according to Jesus' story. Every human being will be called to account in spite of our misconceptions. Notice what Jesus does. Verses 24 and 25, the unfaithful servant replies, I knew you to be a hard man, so I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. See, the master has now just become a mirror for this man's heart. And he's looking through the lens of his own fear and his own suspicion, and he views the master as a man who drives a hard bargain, who expects something for nothing. In the story, he's called wicked and slothful. And he knows the master's a hard man, but, but is what he knows right and true? And notice how his misconceptions about the master fill him with fear. He's accusing the master of being a harsh pharaoh instead of a loving father. I know you. You're the one who grinds people to dust. You're the one who says, make more bricks with less straw. It's because you like to jack with people. I know what you're like. 
And as this man believes these lies and lives by these lies, it actually becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Because if we believe lies about God hard enough and long enough, it actually starts to twist our souls. Everyone in this room is doomed to be defined by the lies we believe unless sanity breaks in from the outside. Picture with me a man who embezzles money from a company that his father built right on the eve of his father's retirement, just as his father's preparing to hand the company over to him. Now, instead of inheriting his father's wealth, he's arrested by the feds. Picture his father coming to him and sadly asking why he tried to steal his own inheritance. Picture that man saying to his father as he's let off in handcuffs, I knew you were a hard man, that you were never going to give me anything, so I had to take it for myself. I knew no matter how well I managed your money, it never would have been good enough for you. So what's the point? Now what's so heartbreaking about this is in the maze of his own mind, that man is actually getting just what he predicted, Right? But, but not because he was right about his father, but because he was wrong about himself. If you're convinced here today that God's a hard man and stewardship is just a fancy word for him trying to take something from you instead of give you something, if you believe that lie long enough, someday you'll end up losing everything. Not because you were right about God, but because you were wrong about yourself. We think we're so qualified to make judgments about God's character, we're not even qualified to make judgments about our own. What's crazy is consumerism, this sort of modern vice, is actually more adjacent to the man burying his master's gifts than we could think. Because if we're honest, all too often we're frantically consuming out of fear that God's going to come along and take something away from us before we can enjoy it. Right? We're like the kid stuffing donuts in his face before his mom finds him, right? And we're energized by this false belief that God's a hard man. If we slow down long enough to let him speak into how we relate to our time and our money and our attention and our relationships, he's going to descend on our fun and he's going to snuff it out like some celestial wet blanket. But maybe if we keep our heads down, Manage not to draw his attention, trigger a spiritual audit. So maybe God will leave us enough left over to live on. So we tiptoe around. But what if you slowed down long enough and got quiet enough to finally let God speak into your stewardship? What are you afraid might happen? Are you right to be afraid? At the end of the day, aren't we really asking, what is God really like? What's he really like? Does he match up with the erratic, petty, and aloof deity of movies and television that's so easy to laugh at? In the words of one theologian, there's no God in heaven who's not like Jesus. What's God really like? Look at Jesus. If you're wondering what God's really like, I think the best thing you could do is pick up a Bible. If you don't have one, we'd love to give you one. 
and turn to Mark's gospel, his eyewitness account of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And if you're willing, a member of this faith community would even love to read Mark alongside of you. And as you read Mark's gospel, I want you to watch how he talks to counterculture kids. Look at how he talks to the powerless and the prejudiced against. The beaten down and hopeless, the shamed and the ostracized, the sick and the starving. I think you'll be surprised. You'll be surprised by the dignity and attention he extends to women who had little cultural status or power in that day and age. Even women of races he would have been raised to despise. I think you'll be surprised by how he intentionally does the most good for those least able to do anything for him. I think you'll be surprised by how consistently he speaks truth to power and refuses to play political games or suck up to the elite. (laughs) I think you'll be surprised by how tenderly he treats the sexually broken. How patient he is with the timid and the terrified. I knew you to be a hard man, so I was afraid. But what people think about God reveals very little about God and a lot about them. There's no God in heaven who's not like Jesus. Are you willing to at least question what you think you know about God based on what you see in Jesus? Jesus goes on to help us see that not only will every human being be called to account in spite of our misconceptions, but every human being will also be called to account in spite of our lack of motivation. Verse 25, I was afraid. I went and hid your talent in the ground. It's been well said that the third servant's response represents a religion only concerned with not doing anything wrong. A religion only concerned with not doing anything wrong. And biblical Christianity knows nothing of this. That means that if there's zero evidence of stewardship in your life, if there's zero desire to take what's been entrusted to you and to maximize your joy by making Jesus famous with it, then you might not yet be a Christian. To be made a Christian is to be saved by faith alone. Faith is an empty hand but not a faith that remains alone. Real trust in and affection for God can't help but slowly start to work itself out in what we think and say and do and desire. And it's not gonna look impressive, but there will be a pulse. One scholar says, the failure of the bad servant consists not in any loss of money, but in returning it without increase. It wasn't that he did something wrong, he just did Nothing. So ask yourself, do you ever abstain from fulfilling your own sense of need in order to give to others? Here's a man who seems to receive his master's gift, but then he buries it in the ground, and in so doing, he doesn't really receive his master's gift at all. He's really rejecting it. Burying what's been generously given to steward is an act of contempt and fear. 
This is not like a high school football coach who berates one of his players for running a broken route. This is like a player who burns his playbook instead of studying it. And then when his coach asks him why he didn't learn the plays, he defends himself by saying, you know, I knew you'd be impossible to please, so I thought the best thing to do was not even try. More and more people think and live this way in the West. Life in the West is increasingly marked by despair, deep and unshakable despair that we're all just trying to cover up with a bunch of distraction. And if you got a little bit of money, you can do that for a while. More and more people are coming to believe the best thing to do is to not even try to live as stewards. More and more people have become supremely unmotivated to steward God's gifts. But what's so heartbreaking is that in the midst of their despair, they fail to see that stewardship isn't a list you check so that God smiles at you. It's actually an antidote to despair because it leads, Jesus says in our story, to joy. Verse 23, well done, good and faithful servant. Notice, enter into the joy of your master. You know, if you grew up in the Bible Belt, the next sentence I say is just gonna sound wild and bizarre to you, but one of the best ways to steward God's gifts is to enjoy them as much as you possibly can. I mean, think about that. How could you say you love a musician if you've never heard their music? Or that you appreciate a chef, but you refuse to eat their food? Or an artist, but you've never bothered to look at their paintings? When Chris and I were still dating a long time ago, (laughs) 17 years ago, we had the privilege of eating a 10-course meal at this restaurant, Manresa, in Los Gatos, California, David Kinch's restaurant. At that time, it was considered the 13th best restaurant in the world. And I know some of you are going, how do you even determine a thing like that? There's a list every year, top 50 restaurants in the world. There's an estimated 1 million restaurants worldwide. To this day, 17 years later, Manresa still holds three Michelin stars, one of only 135 restaurants on the entire planet to carry that distinction. Now, I ate that meal a long time ago, but I can still describe to you what the food looked like and how it tasted. I remember, and I've got a terrible memory. But, but that meal didn't just give me appreciation for food in general. It gave me an appreciation for David Kinch's cooking in particular, right? Now, what if I had just taken pictures of each course as it came out, but never took a bite? One of the best ways we steward God's gifts is to enjoy them. Can you imagine if you spent a long time thinking and planning and picked out a gift for a friend and wrapped it and brought it to them and you came over to their house months later and it was still sitting there unopened on their kitchen table? What would be your conclusion about their appreciation of your gift? God wants us to open all his gifts Because the momentary delight that we experience as we enjoy his gifts is designed by him as a doorway we step through into the infinite delight that we're ultimately going to find in him. Even better than the gifts is the giver. David Kinch probably would have come out to our table if he'd seen the plates going back to the kitchen untouched. (laughs) Imagine if he'd asked me if anything was wrong and I replied, I mean, it's just a lot of work, you know, Uh, Nothing looks familiar. It feels like I'd have to really think about what I was doing to engage this meal. I'm just not sure it's worth the effort. (laughs) 
And, and that leads to our concluding question. What does Jesus mean when he says in verse 29, for to everyone who has will more be given and he will have an abundance. Jesus' hearers would have immediately recognized the principle he had already taught them. Back in Matthew 13, his disciples asked him, why do you talk to people in these parables? These weird stories about crops and birds and trees that actually seem to conceal more than they reveal. And Jesus explained to them, if I just tell it to them straight, it's only going to harden them in the resistance to me, so I tell it slant. This is me being gracious, offering them something that might slip past their defenses, offering them maybe a final opportunity to have their imaginations awakened by what their hard hearts have already rejected. The story Jesus tells is a parable. It's a story that doesn't show its meaning on the surface. But if the listener's game, if the listener's open and brings the right attitude to bear on the story, they can catch the meaning. They could even be changed by it. But parables can just as easily be dismissed. Too much work, so many of Jesus' hearers decided. This guy's stories aren't worth the effort. And you know what's so crazy is that the three servants in the parable actually relate to their master's money just like Jesus' listeners relate to his stories. Think about it. The master gives them all this money, but he doesn't really give them detailed directions in the story for what to do with it. So just like a parable, they gotta get their hands dirty. They gotta wrestle out the meaning for themselves. The first two servants have the right attitude. They're game. They get to work. But the third servant, what does he do? He takes his master's money and he treats it like so many of Jesus' hearers treat his stories. He dismisses and he buries this immense gift that's been given to him to work out for himself. He decides it's too risky. It's not worth the effort. How we receive God's gifts reveals a lot about what we already believe about the giver. Whether his teaching is even worth bothering with. So the final thing I want to leave you with is this. How are you going to respond to the generosity of Jesus? How are you going to respond to the teachings of Jesus? After hearing what you've heard today, are you going to decide he's not worth the effort? Are you going to bury him and drown him out? Are you going to numb out and slide back into distraction? If Jesus really rose from the dead, if he's really coming again, then you were made for so much more. You're not a consumer. Father, we thank you for your truth. Thank you for how you meet us in the pages of this book. Open our eyes, we pray. For Jesus' sake, amen. Stand with me now as we prepare to come to the Lord's table. We've been made stewards. We've been entrusted with the command to not stop taking this meal until Jesus comes back. And Paul explained why in Corinthians. He said, every time we take this meal together, we actually proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We proclaim the truth 
that we're not such good people. There's a deep brokenness in us that was so severe that it took the very Son of God dying to repair it. Jesus took the bread and he broke it to try to explain that to his disciples. He said, this is my body broken for you. Eat grace. Come to the table and feed by faith on what God has done for you through Jesus. In the same way, he took the cup and he said, this is actually a new way to relate to God. When my blood is shed, when they break my body and hang me up to die, you know what's gonna pour out? Life. All those wayward desires you feel ashamed about, all the ways in which consumerism continues to suck you back in, he said, I died for that. I shed my blood in such a way that I'm actually gonna change you from the inside out. My blood is gonna give you a new taste. When you drink the fruit of the vine today and it hits your taste buds, be reminded of the reality that he's died so there's power available to give you a new taste, to desire new and better and more lasting and satisfying things. He's gonna give you himself. So come to the table and feed on him by faith. If you're not a Christian, if the questions I asked you, they hit home and you're going, oh yeah, I've been doing the religious thing, but I don't know Jesus like that. That's okay, faith is an open hand. If you're like, I don't feel like I have anything to bring him, he's like, great, those are the only kind of people I accept. (laughs) He'll forgive you. He'll give you a new self. He'll actually give you himself. So don't come to this table, come to Jesus. He'll save you, he'll forgive you, he'll cleanse you. And then you'll look around the room and realize that you're surrounded by your brothers and your sisters. You'll have been adopted into the family of God, you'll have a father. He doesn't take anybody back to the orphanage. All those who come to him, he doesn't lose one of them.